From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. When it comes to public electric vehicle chargers, the U.S. has nearly 158,000 in the whole country. Now, this might seem like a big figure, but when you set it against Europe's 693,000 and China's colossal 2.1 million, well, then you start to realize the scale of the task that lies ahead as the U.S. readies itself for the upcoming electric vehicle era of transport. So looking back in 2021, the Biden administration announced the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Formula Program, or NEVI for short. They had the intention of aiding the installation of charging infrastructure, which would be required for the mass rollout of electric vehicles across the states. However, complicating matters in the U.S. included the charging network itself. It's a patchwork quilt of different entities competing against one another, and at the heart of the battle has been an issue around whether your vehicle is compatible, either with the combined charging system or CCS connector, or Tesla's own North American charging standard equivalent. Now, Tesla was early in its national rollout of charging stations and ultra-fast chargers, so it became a dominant player. But with other electric vehicle brands now gaining in popularity, this begs the question, can anyone compete with Tesla's charging network, or will they have to join them? To find out more, on today's episode, I speak with BNF's head of electric vehicle charging, Ryan Fisher, as well as a senior associate on our EV team, Corey Cantor. The topics that we discuss include the number of fast and slow chargers across a variety of different U.S. charging networks, who owns them, their failings, and also their successes, and the subsidies on offer at the federal level as a part of the NEVI scheme. And lastly, Tesla's competitors and whether anyone can actually really challenge them or will their rivals need to accept the North American charging standard as the national standard. As always, if you like this podcast, if you subscribed, you're going to receive updates on future episodes. And if you give us a review, it'll make us more discoverable by others. But right now, let's jump into our conversation with Ryan and Corey. Corey, thank you for joining the show today. Thanks, Dana. Happy to be here. And Ryan, thank you for being here. Thanks, Dana. So we're going to talk about charging networks, specifically in the United States, where there's a lot of activity going on at the moment. So can you first explain what the NEVI is, and uh, then let's get into what that means for charging in the U.S.? So yeah, it's um, $7.5 billion of funds from the government split into two main funds, $5 billion for highway um, largely highways, fast charging, and then another $2.5 billion for initiatives in other areas called the discretionary grant. So more details on that to come. And to add to Ryan's point, the NEVI funding in the kind of $5 billion pot 
is controlled a lot by the states. And so they've already begun setting out their plans. And we're beginning to see the early stages of charging companies actually be selected by states. So Ohio uh, and Maine are two examples. And so even though the infrastructure law that began the funding of the NEVI program passed almost two years ago, as of this November, we haven't really seen any chargers built out yet. So there's still a lot of work to do. So before we get into any sorts of details about what we think will happen for the future of charging networks in the U.S., because there is so much focus on this at the moment, let's talk about the current state of play. So what does the existing charging infrastructure look like in the U.S. and, you know, what companies dominate it? Yeah, so the the infrastructure in the US, I think there's around 150, 160,000 connectors now. If you think about this kind of fast versus slow charging, am I taking hours, am I taking minutes to charge? Something like 125,000 to a 35,000 split. California maybe unsurprisingly dominates in terms of the, the, the total states. I think New York is second, but quite far behind. In terms of the companies, Tesla is kind of the key one out there installing, spending the money, putting in that fast infrastructure. And obviously, we've heard a lot about the deals with the other automakers, and and I'm sure we'll talk about that later today. And then you've got others, EVgo, also putting in chargers, Electrify America, who's funded by VW, and then ChargePoint, who is kind of this weird mix in in that they're selling the hardware and the software, but they're not ultimately the, the operators of that infrastructure. But many other examples, but they're the big ones. So Corey, maybe you could shed some light on what the current state of play is in California from a charging standpoint. Yeah. I I mean, Dana, in terms of California specifically, what's interesting is the fact that it's a fairly robust EV ecosystem. For listeners of the show, to give you a sense, California in the first half of this year saw about a 25%, nearly one in four vehicles sold as electric. And so at BNEF, when we talk about electric vehicles, we're talking battery electric and plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. California has about one third of all of the electric vehicle chargers, uh, public charging connectors built as of the end of 2022. I've been working recently on a piece that folks should expect to see sometime this month around different EV state markets. And California actually looks quite good in terms of EVs per charging connector around 27, 28 or so. And so it's not perfect. California has its own challenges to deal with in terms of the grid and in terms of uh, ensuring that higher level of EV adoption can coexist with a grid that's fairly reliable on renewable energy. But they have a a robust charging build out, including a state uh, sponsor of charging infrastructure. And they're even thinking ahead about what the NEVI program means for them. So one thing that California does that's interesting with NEVI is at the kind of national level, NEVI has a minimum requirement of 150 kilowatts for many of their highway fast chargers. California is even looking at some sites where they're going to require 350 kilowatts for high volume EV charging sites. So California, just like any country, has its challenges, but they've been fairly robust with their EV charging build out. The other thing about California, we discussed this when I was on the podcast with Jade last time, but is uh, the low carbon fuel standard, the LCFS, basically credits deficits built by the kind of oil and gas majors, having to then buy them off people who who sell low carbon fuels. So if if you're producing or selling electricity for charging, you you basically can generate these credits. And they're about 10% of revenues for some of these charging companies, which kind of is cyclical, and then people were more likely to build infrastructure. So kind of plays into why California has more chargers. So when we think about these chargers, are the new ones going in, are they largely superchargers? Or is there an even split between these slower versus much 
much quicker charging stations. When you look most of the markets, you, you really see percentage-wise, it, it's kind of 80% the slower chargers on a total number basis. If you then start to look at investment or the number of electrons that are being delivered from the chargers, it, it's really these faster, more powerful ones that are taking the lion's share of money and, and uh, distributing electricity. And we're talking specifically about public chargers at the slow range, not in people's homes as they're setting them up directly in their home after they've bought an electric vehicle. Yeah, that's right. So they, they could be anywhere. Golf courses might have slow chargers, hotels, th- these kind of destinations. But more so when you think shopping centers were competing for slow chargers, now actually people are realizing, well, fast chargers are also suitable there. We're seeing more competition. Walmart is now getting in the game themselves. So they've recognized that essentially if you're staying at a hotel, you're more than likely to stay overnight and you have enough time to get a charge. Whereas if you're going to Walmart, you may not be spending your entire day there. Yeah, exactly. And you kind of want to come out and have your car full. So even though there was this thing of, oh, we'll have slow so people stay in the store forever. Like there's a limit to how long people probably want to stay in, <laughs> in the in the store. And I think that 45 minutes with the battery sizes we've got today on a 150 kilowatt charge, which is kind of in that, in that fast range, would go from zero to 80, 90%. I mean, Corey and I both have these recent experiences where we've rented Teslas uh, and actually in different states. So, Corey, where were you when you rented your Tesla? Yeah, my my girlfriend and I were at a wedding in California, and it it felt like the perfect opportunity to rent an EV, given how many chargers, again, are in California. So we rented a Tesla Model 3, and we were staying at a hotel that advertised free charging. Uh, Unfortunately, Dana, that charger, while offered and advertised, was so good that other people were using it for pretty much the entire time that we were there. So we ended up using fast charging uh, as a part of Tesla's supercharging network. But again, it, it is a nice perk. I wish the hotel had more chargers. So I rented a Tesla Y in Massachusetts and ended up using it for three weeks across Massachusetts, New York State and Rhode Island and did a bit of a road trip around there and was definitely the stereotypical supercharger well, the, the person that they're looking for, which essentially pulls into the parking lot, charges the car and probably goes into every store that's in that particular parking lot they were at. But the more important thing was that we exclusively use Tesla superchargers. And I am very interested to learn that those superchargers are actually now open to a number of other different types of car owners. Let's delve into that a little bit. What other companies now have access to Tesla superchargers in the U.S.? Oh, there's 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 quite a few signed up, and it almost makes it seem like a landslide win that everybody's going to to Tesla. So you, GM, Ford were the first two. Mercedes is on there. Rivian, Fisker, Volvo. The list goes on. I think what's important is who's not on there. So Stellantis, Toyota, BMW, Hyundai, Kia. There's still some big hitters who have not quite signed up yet, and they, whilst accounting for maybe a small percent of EV sales, account for a lot of car sales. So let's say some of their um, strategy about how many EVs they're going to sell comes true, then they're still splitting from Tesla and, and maybe being a bit aware of the dominance and the, and the strategic win that they may hand by signing up with them. Can I can I have one point, Ryan, on to just about the Tesla dominance? So Tesla has rebranded its supercharging uh, connector as NAX, the North American Charging Standard, as an effort to sort of broaden the uh, reach of the network and and position themselves really as the leading uh, charging connector type here in the U.S. and Canada. 
There's one stat you use in a lot of your presentations that I really appreciate because I think it really illustrates how much dominance Tesla actually has. It was the installation of new superchargers last year, which I believe was around like 3,000 or so. And these other networks are more, uh, I think, in the 500 or so range in terms of new installations. And so there's a reason why these automakers have been unhappy with some of the charging build out to date. And I think that the numbers show it, but also all of these announcements you just highlighted, Ryan, really drive the point that it's not necessarily that everyone wants to kind of jump on board with Tesla. It's just they're so far out ahead of the competition over here in the U.S. that really the EV charging story in the U.S. is Tesla and then there's everyone else. Yeah. And it, it, like anecdotal stories are sometimes the best. And I was kind of sat on my sofa and I don't usually have Twitter, but a Twitter spaces pops up and it's Mary Barra and it's Elon Musk. And I'm thinking like, what is this? It's got to be <laughs> some kind of big announcement. And this comes on the back of Tesla buying Twitter, GM not going on Twitter at all for like seven, eight months. It's the first time they've ever posted anything in the whole time. And GM is maybe the typical corporate car manufacturer, very organized, very explicit about what they're doing. I'm pretty sure Elon Musk was in his car. You could almost sound like you could hear a child in the back seat muffling around and it was just so casual so this massive strategic shift for gm it just showed that they were almost having to bow down to tesla and surely they didn't want to do it but they just noticed all of the importance that was in it and that setting did show that they really needed it and musk maybe was lording it up a little bit and then ford actually followed the very similar trajectory as gm or i guess they predated it so when did ford sign on for this charging network I think Ford was a little bit earlier, maybe two, three weeks earlier. And you could almost, a bit of a scramble really for GM to, to sign up. And I think that falls through when you, you think about some of the things, the issues that may be caused by this. You've got multiple connectors now in the US, some people are using CCS, some people are using Tesla's. If I'm buying a car, do I want to buy a car knowing that I'm going to have an adapter when I go to a different network? There's a reason why you don't want to have these because they could be unsafe. Like you clip it in and you you can largely, if it's the automaker manufactured one, not unclip it while you're charging. You're not going to get an electric shock. But if you buy one of the cheap ones online, it doesn't have the safety catch and somebody might get electrocuted. So there's all of these like things coming out of it that are just not, not exactly ideal. So it isn't like a straight switch. Some of these are saying, we're going to adopt this in two years on our vehicles. So it doesn't give the best gloss wow. for the OEMs. Now, you mentioned CCS. Now, Ryan, this just shows me that you have been working in the electric vehicle team for a very, very long time because CCS means something a little different to many of us at BNEF. What does CCS mean to you in this context? So I think the, the acronym is Combined Charging System, but essentially you can think of it if you go from a, a, Europe or to the US or US to Europe, it's just a slightly different connector standard in terms of how the pins look and then maybe some of the actual software and communications behind it. So moving over to, to Tesla One, once it works perfectly today, you plug a Tesla into a Tesla supercharger. If you actually with one of these other OEMs, there isn't any real guarantee that it's going to fully work. Are they going to be able to implement it the same? Are they going to want to implement it the same? So the problem for the other OEMs is you, you buy a Volkswagen and you, you go and charge somewhere it doesn't work. It's because everybody's using the same thing. They maybe not implemented the standard correctly or they've all implemented it slightly different. And whilst the gloss of what Tesla is doing is there and like this ultimate, oh, it's going to be this, the same pinnacle, the same experience. I have to admit there's a bit of pessimism from me as to whether that will actually be the case when these other charge manufacturers go. And, and Corey was maybe more in the detail on this, but there's a series on Charge TV, which is like a magazine. Somebody's gone out and they're discussing four-part series on this, this experience. They've gone out and they've interviewed a lot of people. And when you look in some of those details, it almost seemed like top-down. They, they decided at exec level, we're going to move to the Tesla charging connector. And some of the engineers maybe didn't quite know. And nobody's going to come out and say that full well, but there, there was like a, a little bit of that appearing in the, in the text and the sentiment of those articles. 
Well, because this is why I keep harping on about when the dates were that these agreements were made. And GM and Ford were fairly recent, but perhaps the other companies were quite a bit before that. And then, I mean, maybe you can answer that question for me, because the reason I am fixated on it is the fact that I did not see anything other than a Tesla on a Tesla supercharger. And trust me, I went to quite a few of them over the course of three weeks. And I'm thinking maybe the owners of these other cars just don't know. Or as you're inferring, maybe the experience isn't as seamless as we might think it will be. Oh, so it was Ford was first. Uh, I must have been May, mid-May, back end of May. That, then GM in in the June, I think, and then all of these other ones then followed over the the preceding weeks. Oh, so this um, is really extremely recent. Yeah, extremely recent. So none of these other cars, they've all still got the CCS connector. There's probably no adapters that you can buy yet. So they feasibly probably can't many of them go. Some of the charger manufacturers have put Tesla's connector on the thing. So you went to a charge point one, it might now have the Tesla or Nax connector as it's called. So now when I go home next summer, it might be a very different experience and I might be waiting in the queue for other other cars to get off of these chargers because that does happen when they get completely flooded. You have to kind of sit there and wait five minutes for somebody else to vacate the charger. Yeah. And one of the things of this deal that didn't get well highlighted was that they only actually access 12,000 of the superchargers and there's 19,000 in the system. So oh. they're actually doing a little bit of probably analysis to say which ones have low <laughs> utilization and can, can take other people, which one of the premium locations for Tesla the drivers that we want to we want to keep so they're not they're not giving access to everything now i want to talk about this in terms of profitability because when when i thought about chargers a couple of years ago it was when tesla was initially launching this exclusive network in many respects i think a lot of us were thinking about the chargers as a way to facilitate tesla ownership and that they themselves were not the business but clearly if tesla's out there now selling the superchargers it's not an exclusive use situation anymore and this begs the question, what are the margins like for these chargers? And are these themselves a business in their own right? And is the game really very much changed to being about cars and charging rather than focus specifically on selling the vehicles? I mean, in, in one of the tweets Musk did, he said it was about, we're not looking to make much profitability. It's about 10% margin we're looking for. Some of the companies are now, if you look across Europe, Lego is, is one that is on uh, the stock exchanges and they, they do fast charging. And that's one of the main things they're now aiming at. They're saying we can pay back these chargers in four years and the IRR can be 25%. So certainly there's glimpses of it. In BP's investor presentation recently, it, maybe three weeks ago, Bernard Looney was saying they're EBITDA positive for Germany and China. So there's certainly signs that this is going in the right direction. If you look at some of the charge point operators though, so EVgo is, is one in the US, they're selling electricity. They have made their revenues, uh, have grown quite a lot. But if you look at the percentage of revenues, they've had to move into the game instead of selling electricity, building the charges for other people. So 66% of their total revenues were actually, instead of their original business model, we're going to sell electricity. They're now making most of their revenue from building charges for other networks. Oh, wow. <laughs> Okay. So now, Corey, you have mm -hmm. this experience recently in California using the Tesla network in where it is actually most prevalent. Did you go to any other chargers? No. And you know what? It, it's more so because it's so integrated into the car experience and, and knowing what you do as a U.S. driver 
I mean, the number of newspaper articles that pop up on a monthly or quarterly basis saying electrify America charger down or or four out of five down, it, it just makes you not want to even consider those options. And Tesla makes it really easy with the app integration, so much so that when we were talking about the Nevi program before, part of Nevi requires all of the other charging operators, the ChargePoint, EVgo, Electrify America, to kind of come together to have a uh, common app experience. Tesla was exempt from that requirement because when the Biden administration administration struck a deal with Musk to get those superchargers open that Ryan was talking about. They basically said, Tesla, you can kind of keep your own app and keep your own data uh, to yourself. So no, it wasn't a consideration. And frankly, without being confident in the uptime, it's hard to make that decision. My dad also drives uh, or you know drives a Tesla for his day-to-day uh, life. And it was hard to even direct him when he was in a bit of a charging desert towards one of those other charging companies, just because if they were down, he would be so far away from the supercharger that was likely to be up that he could be in some real EV-related, I'd say, range danger. So no, Dana, it's really sticking with the Tesla network has has worked out quite well here. And so, yeah, from my experience, I wasn't even looking uh, to use a kind of other adapter. So we certainly expect to see some real enhancements to the, I guess, guiding one to a charger and actual real-time information regarding what's available, what's working, and what's not in the near term in order to facilitate, I guess, the, the wider rollout. Does that then mean that that's going to provide an advantage to some of these other networks? Or do we think that mm-hmm. because Tesla's so far ahead and now you're indicating that so many companies are actually jumping on to this particular existing network that really that's the one most poised to expand? It's not like Tesla's, I'd say, integration with these vehicles moving forward is going to be seamless. I mean, when you're operating the supercharger network to date, there's been four different vehicle models that they've had to work on. And, you know, we're all still waiting for the Cybertruck to see if that's able to uh, work seamlessly. Now, when you're talking about dozens of different models from different automakers, before you're even getting to the adapter that Ryan mentioned, let's say we're, you know, a year and a half, two years from now, that's still a lot for an, an operator to manage. On the other hand, when it comes to the competitors, and we could jump in to the joint venture that was announced, the joint consortium of seven automakers at some point. There just isn't kind of a clear game plan for how these guys are going to even kind of claim the number two spot in America. At least on my end, I could say there's definitely a lot of charging need here. So while Tesla is probably growing stronger with a lot of these announcements, it's not a done deal that they'll be the only large charging network provider here. But on the other hand, at this early point, it's hard to say that you can, you know, jump on bandwagon of another charging infrastructure operator to say that they will learn from the early stage and be able to take advantage of the market as it grows here. So the U.S. manufacturers have formed a consortium recently. So they're saying we're going to build 30,000 chargers, which is the biggest announcement we've seen. That will put them in in a strong position. But then the question comes, can they deliver that? Can they deliver what they've got? Can you go from a standing start to being something producing? Tesla have been doing this for, for probably, I don't know what it was, 2012 or something like that. Yeah. So delivering it is difficult. Having the sites is difficult. Getting the grid connections as a kind of high level point. We, we don't know whether we're going from a, a position of this really reducing in cost significantly over time because the key pieces of land might go. The good grid connections may go. What Tesla has that we've not discussed is low costs of hardware. And we've seen that come out in some of the Nevi grants. So five states, I think, have been awarded. We'd already analyzed this last year in our, our kind of charger survey. Most people are somewhere between $120,000 and $200,000 per connector on kind of a project level. And Tesla seemed down at like 40000 I was reading one today that said $17,000 um, per connector. So they're able to do this much cheaper. Some of that is, I think, the hardware production scale. And some of it, I think, is things like they're prefabricating the chargers. They're putting in like a big block of them in one go. 
What are the companies that are essentially trying to pose competition for the incumbent? So that deal, and Corey, you, you, you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong, basically includes most of those in Ionity. So BMW, Hyundai, Mercedes, Stellantis, GM. Um, it's maybe interesting in a way of who's not in it because Ford and Volkswagen are not in it. So Ford, it's, it's not so obvious. Volkswagen have Electrify America. So they, maybe they're saying we don't want to fund the co- like another network. We've already got a network. So there's a third network. So essentially, you would need to, in some way, well, be allowed to use each of these three networks if you wanted to have one complete network that would enable you to avoid charging deserts. And I think this is one of the things that really differs from when you think about petrol stations, where essentially, not only are they everywhere, but more importantly, you can go to anyone and anyone will take your money. Do we foresee a future in the U.S. where these different networks, at least on a pay-as-you-go basis, will be available to anybody with an electric vehicle? vehicle, or is it going to still continue to be quite restricted by brand to charger type? That's what the Biden administration hopes, right? A lot of these NEVI grant requirements is aiming for interoperability. And Ryan, to, to your point, we're only talking about two to three different charger types, right? We've talked about CCS and NACS. There's an older version uh, here called Chadmo, which is really only used by Nissan. So the, the networks are kind of, I, I like to think of them as maybe gas station companies or petrol station companies. It doesn't mean that the same EV can't work if they have a NACS connector available. But I think the bigger question around kind of these competitors that Ryan just got to is, is this new kind of joint consortium going to be on the level of getting that land? Because right, announcements are nice, but building EV chargers is more difficult. And now when you're seeing these really low Tesla bids, even if you're a state using NEVI funding, attempting to kind of have a diversity of chargers, if Tesla is able to do it so much cheaper and they keep on winning these grants, they're going to only continue to gain more of that market power. But at least from a conceptual standpoint, if there's two or three or four for big charging networks here in the US, that'd probably be a good thing for consumers. It's less of a tech problem and more of a, you know, making a profit and competitive advantage issue. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So you mentioned Electrify America, which is one of the larger U.S. electric vehicle charging companies. But there has been some scrutiny recently over some of these failings. You referenced broken chargers showing up and things not quite working. So paint a picture in my mind of what exactly is going on there. So I think there's two dynamics, uh, one that is maybe less talked about and one that is a bit more obvious. So, so one of them is that you've got all of these different vehicle manufacturers trying to work with one charger network rolling out. Um, then the technical standards are not working. Some of them are, are turning off. Maybe you could argue this is like a separate side business for VW and they're not so interested in it. Fundamentally, this was legislated that because of Dieselgate, they had to own this business. Even from there, you could say, well, why wasn't the money given to other people? Why did VW get to spend it themselves? They then had this kind of arguably strategic 
strategic advantage. Then you've got the like press versus reality side of it. So if you, if you look at the statistics, in 2021, they delivered 41 gigawatt hours of energy. And in 2022, they delivered 173 gigawatt hours of energy. So they are actually delivering much more energy. People are, whilst they're all, we all we hear about is failures, they're delivering a lot, lot of stuff. But no doubt there is a lot of talk about how bad the situation is and that it never works. And I think that's led to a lot of the car manufacturers basically saying, we're kind of annoyed behind the scenes at VW and maybe fed into this other network that they've, the joint venture that's come together. You said VW has this network because of Dieselgate. First of all, explain what Dieselgate is <laughs> for those of us who have a short corporate memory. And secondly, why because of Dieselgate? I will give a short answer and I'm sure Corey knows all of the details, <laughs> but Basically, Dieselgate, they, they put devices on the cars that would perform in the test runs when, when you go out to see what emissions the car were giving, and they give a low score. And it was actually found in the wild that they were giving much more higher emissions. And therefore, governments realized this, and they said, well, that's not correct. And they fined them a lot of money. So in the US, there's a lot of gasoline over diesel, but there was a part of the, I think, global Volkswagen issues with emissions testing. Um, and the Environmental Protection Agency back in about 2015 called them out on this and successfully negotiated the settlement. So in terms of context of why this was happening and why not giving it to a bunch of charging companies, Tesla was an existing company at that point. But going back to 2015, EVs were just a trickle in the bucket. And so what the EPA at the time was thinking is they did something bad. We're going to have them put the money towards funding things like charging infrastructure, maybe some school buses or buses to do something good, right, to kind of build out the network of the future. What's interesting is we've been talking a lot about NEVI. $2 billion is one third of the NEVI program, just about. And you could see maybe money doesn't go as far as it should. Volkswagen, I, I think, Ryan, you're right, that there is definitely a harsher maybe reality than the statistics show. And in, in that Charged Up EV magazine piece, which is by John Volker, a lot of the conversation in his piece is around the frustration they had there with Electrify America in particular, just because they had such a long lead up time. And it's even rubbed off to some extent on the other EV charging companies, even if it's not necessarily their fault. What I'd say from an analyst perspective, and I think it'd be great for both my team and Ryan's team to have more of this information, is just more transparent data on uptime. Um, I think that's been a frustration for a lot of researchers in the US to get a sense of, are things really as bad as news reports say? Unfortunately, Electrify America in particular has been pretty protective of their data. You know, understandable in some ways because it's their customer but to combat that narrative. And so when these Tesla announcements have been happening around automakers switching to Next, there hasn't even been much of a pushback from some of the CCS companies. If anything, they've said, okay, we'll just add a connector as opposed to saying, well, the reality is CCS does provide some good benefits in particular around vehicle to grid. Tesla says their chargers can do it, but we haven't really seen it to date. And then some of that 350 kW charging that, for example, the Hyundai Ioniq 5 uses, Tesla says their V4 of their supercharger will be able to do that. But again, a lot of this is depending on Tesla. And so you haven't even seen the CCS folks make the arguments that many of the cool EV technologies are built around CCS or, or CCS2 in Europe. It's weird, that PR battle. It's almost like Tesla obviously wants you to think it's the best connector. It's this, that and the other. They've literally got Mary Barra saying it's a lighter connector. It's even better after, what was it, five, maybe more, six years of them saying they're using CCS. They're just like totally bowing to Tesla. Yet you then look at the other side of the story and you think, well, why why was Electrify America not out there with four times more energy distributed in one year and all of these good things? And I think there is a little bit of like the PR play. And that obviously for Tesla now, they've got all these automakers on their system 
system. That <laughs> yeah. system goes through standards that they want. They're going to their chargers. What if they said, oh, well, to use those 12,000 chargers now, you've got to pay a bigger deal in five years' time. Like, we don't know the terms of those deals, but certainly seems quite quite strong for them. And it's, it's not just the automakers that are slightly worried about that. If you're a charging operator and you've decided to put the Tesla connector in, what if Tesla then say, oh, to use our connector now, you have to pay some more money as well. So people are a bit unsure, but for Tesla, that was it was like a, a month or two months of just like positive news and everybody bowing and all of a sudden they're in this dominant position. But there's a reason why the Toyotas, Stellantis's, Hyundai Kias have not gone to that way. Although when you read the news, you might think everybody has. The reality is they haven't. One thing I'll, I'll just say to give Tesla a little bit of credit and not just say that they're completely, um, not completely just pushing this on everyone. They have been working with the U.S. Department of Energy and Transportation's joint office to basically work on standardization through an organization uh, known as SAE International. So their charging department of engineers at Tesla are doing a lot of the right things. This standardization process is expected to take through the rest of this year, which is on the expedited process that began in June. So assuming they dot the I's and cross the T's correctly, there is a lot of smart maneuvering that Tesla's doing. And I want to at least say this is just completely at the, you know, Elon tweeted it out and it's it's only happening via tweet. We don't know what the contracts look like. And to Ryan's point, there is a, a lot of uncertainty in this space, but there is a really good charging infrastructure division at Tesla and they are going through the motions on a lot of the correct standards, assuming that these processes are complete. I think to your point, Ryan, there's been almost too many news reports that says this is going to be super easy. This is only going to be a plus for the U.S. consumer immediately. And I think the reality is kind of somewhere in between. It has a lot of upside to make the U.S. have a better charging network, but it's not a simple light switch that all the automakers are going to flip and that Tesla is going to necessarily play ball on everything. So I think you never want to give an answer where it's really uncertain, but I think the next six months are going to determine how smoothly this goes. And then really, it might take a full year until you're getting the model year 2025 cars to even see really how successful is this rollout. And one last thing I'll say that, Ryan, maybe you've heard differently, but a lot of automakers, when you ask them over here, are you just going to have a NACS connector on your Model 25 cars or if you're going to have both CCS and NACS and they won't give a straight answer? So even the automakers who have made the Tesla switch announcement haven't come out and said, you know, are we fully moving away from CCS or are we going to kind of straddle a middle line? And so Again, if I'm a consumer, you want to be patient if you're buying a non-Tesla car. Wow. Six months is not that long. But yeah. certainly you have. So we've got automakers banding together, trying to solve the solution by making, let's say, alliances with one another. And then the Nevi to stimulate some of the growth here and the federal government then looking to essentially see this through, to see this network become more robust and to really facilitate that change to electric vehicles. What then is the role of state governments and have they been more of a facilitator or a hindrance into some of this rollout across different parts of the U.S.? I think the state governments outside of California, they're very early on the EV trajectory. Um, I mentioned the state EV market note that I've been working on. And you do have some states that are beginning to break through with their electric vehicle share of new car sales, which is an, an early indicator of uh, how EV markets are changing. So places like Colorado, uh, Nevada, I got to plug my home state of New Jersey, uh, are all doing quite well. And again, each state can be as large as some European countries. So it's not necessarily easy to do this for the first time. They've all submitted their plans for NEVI uh, as of last year. And to Ryan's point, they're working on 
proposals now to get the charging companies that will eventually put up the chargers at their sites. I think ultimately the state governments are going to be helpful, but right now things are moving slower than I'm sure a lot of EV consumers would want. I think the the most important thing is less speed and more making sure that they've done it right. And frankly, the CCS and NACS kind of conundrum here has added another layer of complexity for these state governments to have to grapple with. I'll give you an example. So some states like Texas uh, are now requiring Tesla's NACS connector to be built on every NEVI-funded charging site in the state of Texas. There are some other states that are doing that as well. And so what that means is if you're a charging infrastructure operator and you want to build in Texas, you have an additional requirement on top of all of the national requirements to boost Tesla's standing. Not necessarily because Texas houses Tesla, there might be a part of it, the Austin factories there, but states don't have an easy job figuring out how to navigate this. They do have a lot of federal resources and there's a ton of money, but they have to really make sure that this isn't a boondoggle. So I think the way they're going about this is taking their time to do this right, as opposed to maybe speed. The law passed almost two years ago now, and we haven't seen really any chargers built. And you're saying that you expect to see things really, I guess, the dust to settle over the next six minutes, say 12 months. But what are the longer term Biden administration goals that are expected to outlive his administration, perhaps? You know, what is it that they're actually shooting for with some of the different stimulus that they're looking at in this space? The Biden administration for a long time has had a target of 500,000 EV charging connectors by the end of the decade, whether that's the stations themselves or the connectors. I've heard more on the connector side, but that's a bit of a vaguity there. In terms of the actual EV share of sales, they had an executive order aiming for about 50% EV share of sale by 2030. And here at BNEF, when we have our long-term outlook, we expect they'll be able to meet that target. And again, they've put billions of dollars towards this electric vehicle transition from not just the charging side we've been talking a lot about, but also billions of dollars in electric vehicle tax credits. Just a couple weeks ago, there was an announcement about $15 billion in EV manufacturing and retooling grants. So even outside of charging world that we spent a lot of time on today, the Biden administration is all in on kind of fostering this EV growth. But again, when we're talking to not just auto companies and other stakeholders, but consumers, charging anxiety remains one of the main obstacles here. It's no longer the models themselves or even the prices of some of these models, while still high, is more and line with the average car price for new vehicles, charging is a a pretty big hurdle. I think that the if you think about our research, so the 500k target, I think, is a great example of a politician setting something that they're easily going to meet. We think somewhere more like 2 million charges by the 2030 deadline that, that they're talking about. If you reflect that back to some of the conversation that we've had so far, we're saying there's 30,000 today. So whilst we're saying Tesla is doing amazing, there is actually a big gap for other people in this next eight years, which can be filled by those automakers and, and other people. In Europe, we just see so many players and they're not quite in the US yet. So BP saying they're going to spend a billion in the US. Shell have acquired a couple of companies and we'd expect them to come in as well. A little bit different way in in EU, you get um, a lot of utilities involved, not necessarily as easy for the utilities due to the structure of them in the US to be quite as involved. But overall, what I'd say is you've gone from a position in the US with limited momentum. There's not been the right regulation. The IRA has come in and then these other people have decided, you know what, actually there's going to be a market for EVs. We, We didn't really believe it before, but now we believe it. It's like the Trump administration to the Biden, the 
IRA money then coming in. And nothing really shows it more than those automakers coming together six years after they realized they're going to have to do this in Europe. They've then done it in America. Like really, they just, they'd come to this conclusion in Europe six years ago, and it's taken them that long to go, okay, well, really it is real. The US market is kind of evolving. Whether we're going to meet these targets has many dependencies. And one of the biggest ones you hear across the world is the grids. Can you build the grid to do so? And, and some of the regulators and energy commissions will have to focus on that area to get this going. And certainly the necessity for a robust grid is something that we addressed in a show just a couple of weeks back. So it does underpin so much of the transition in the energy industry and then here in electric vehicles. So I think that actually, Corey, when you were talking a second ago, you you referred to it as a potential boondoggle. And here's to hoping that when the dust settles, this will be a much more robust charging network. For anybody out there who really wants to understand why people are so excited about superchargers and why they are such a, a point of reference, I will say that my personal experience of you know spending nearly a month renting a car and then doing a road trip and trying to make it happen will certainly bring to light why uh, it's something that so many of us who are looking at this transition transition and actively engaged in it, see these solutions as something that they're certainly interested in watching very closely because it facilitates how you build your Saturday or build your road trip and live your life. So it's really interesting to see from your research that you think that there's a lot to gain and that there's a gap between these targets and and where, where it is will actually end up. And so I would say I've got maybe the one thing that each of you are watching most closely. So I'm watching which percentage of these chargers are actually going to end up being superchargers. What would be the one thing that you're most intrigued by at this point in time and kind of keeping your ear to the ground where you don't know if there is an answer yet? How many chargers actually go in from each of these companies saying they're going to put chargers in? All right. And I think for me, I'm most curious to see if Tesla successfully finishes that certification process without any hiccups and if automakers fully switch with only a NACS connector and once they're moving away from adapters or if they choose to both live in CCS world and NACS at the same time by even having two adapters on each vehicle. Both are potential pathways for them to take, but I'm curious to see if they're really all in on Tesla. All right. Well, let's keep an eye on all of the above. Thanks for joining today. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Dana. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. 
More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.